Nobody asked for another podcast, so here you go, this is yet another Intro Podcast. Welcome everyone to our second episode of our podcast. And we have great topics and speakers for you this time, so we'll just start off with Eric. Thank you for joining us, and as we all realize, you were one of the first five members. And in fact, we have actually three out of the first five members of Yeg, so it's a really episode. It's good to be here. Thanks a lot. Eric, so you recently tweeted about all companies, and you said, if all companies build cars or rent airlines, their main goal would be probably to maximize total oil consumption which is a bit of a perversive incentive. Anyway, I wonder if there's similar dynamic going on with cloud vendor and services higher up in the stack. So what did you mean, Eric, and what caused you to tweet that? Yeah, my sort of bigger thesis here, and I've written about it on my blog post, is that I've seen a bit of an emergence of a second layer of cloud vendors. It's either like Snowflake, but also things like Vercel or Netlify, many other ones. And so this is one of the things I've been thinking about is like, what are the like structural reasons? Like why sometimes cloud vendors have an advantage or sometimes startups have an advantage. I think there's a lot of different ones. I think there's like probably 10, 20 on each side. But one thing that occurred to me as I tweeted this thing was in particular that sometimes misaligned incentive where sometimes bundling is good for consumers, but actually sometimes like bundling is bad if it disincentivizes you to make improvements in one layer because it removes the revenue in another layer. So I pointed it out as a disadvantage for cloud vendors to compete effectively on, on experience other features at the top layer when it reduces revenue in the bottom layer. Awesome. And Anu, which I believe at least at the time of the recording of this episode, you are the newest Mac City that joined us. Welcome. And so you also had a few thoughts and if you can tell us about your thoughts and some of the other conversation with the people that might not be on this recording today, how the discussion evolved from Eric's initial tweet. Yeah, Eric, the question you seem to be asking is that wouldn't I stand to make more money if I also owned an industry that consumed my product as a raw material? And so I can afford to keep the downstream business inefficient if I made more money as an oil business, for example. And I think so just still no. Even coming at it from a couple of different ways, I want to hear your perspectives and keep me honest here. First of all, if reading of your question is correct. Yeah, I think it's like, like overinterpreted, right? Like I've put it out as one particular factor that may create a disadvantage for a cloud vendor to innovate higher up in the services. There's many different other factors, but so let me hear your thoughts. <laughs> yeah, the first one was like, as you think that there can be a gadget that's so efficient that it lowers the overall oil consumption? It must be also then lowering the price of the gadget for consumers. And my suspicion is that would increase the overall consumption of oil on an absolute basis, because that gadget is going to draw a whole lot more latent demand. Now, the question is if that latent demand exists or not, and that's up for discussion. We can all argue about that. And then there was a second angle that I also approached it. If there's a way for a new gadget to be more efficient in raw material consumption, I, as the oil producer, would also want to be in that business. That sounds like a growing business. I think that's right. Like, I don't disagree with that. I think if there's enormous latent demand, I think it's a great thing. If there's not, if there's zero latent demand, then I don't think it matters. Let's say it's man using oil to manufacture fertilizer, right? And someone comes up, I, I, let's just put a sacred argument. Let's assume the demand for fertilizer across the world is like fairly fixed. Like we need a fixed amount of calories or whatever. And like someone comes up with a way to make fertilizer out of something else than oil. I don't know. I don't think, and maybe they make a lot of money. 
that's going to make the world companies mad. There is a reason why the world companies probably won't invent that thing. Maybe that's contrived, maybe it's not, I don't know. But I just kept pointing out, it's like, sometimes it does disincentivize innovation. So you're saying that the, is the argument basically that the, is structurally the cloud providers are trying to build, <laughs> sorry, I'm getting lost the oil analogy. So, but it sounds like you're saying that the cloud providers are incentivized to make EC2 cheaper. And so you're expecting that over time, people will not, the cloud providers will not invest in higher level services because. Like maybe like here, like taking it back to cloud providers, like what, what that I thought about a lot is like certain products that are serverless, right? Or certain things that would maybe improve the utilization rate of the cloud, right? Or something that would like lower the cost. So let's say you have a database that can scale down to zero. Let's say everything else equals some comes up with a database that can scale down to zero, right? Like that may not like in itself unleash a lot of latent demand, but it might actually reduce revenue for AWS. Like, I don't think it's like a top number one feature on AWS backlog to build that, that thing, right? Like, I think it is more likely someone else is going to build that. Eric, one of the things there is also, we have to also acknowledge that these companies are in fierce competition for a very large market with, if we're talking about AWS, then obviously the competitors are Microsoft and Google. And eventually, if there is a value to the customer, and especially Amazon being obsessed with the company, at least claiming to be, then wouldn't you think that they will have to cannibalize their, whether it's margins or their profits in order to actually keep sustaining and still being the largest player in the gigantic market? I, I think that's exactly right. But uh, you, I think you said it, like there's some form of cannibalization going on there and cannibalization is part, right? So that is a factor that disadvantages cloud vendors. And so I think going back to like my main point here, like better read my blog post about a year ago about this is not that necessarily like cloud vendors or third-party standalone vendors will win. I'm just saying, I think there's going to be an emergence of more and more. I'm very biased because I'm one of them, right? I, I build like a cloud provider for data teams. Uh, but I think there's going to be more and more of those vendors at that second layer above the cloud vendors. And I think there's many arguments why we should expect more than them. And I think there's going to be sometimes cloud vendors are going to put up a very hard fight. Sometimes they might even win, but I think on the grand scheme of things, like adding and subtracting all the factors that, you know, advantages or disadvantages cloud vendors and standalone vendors, I think there are many reasons why we should over time expect more and more winners to not be the cloud vendors in the second layer, just like we see with Snowflake. Oh, absolutely. I feel like, what, before I get to the point that you're making, Erica, I just wanted to say that cannibalization in favor of our higher margin service, anybody will take that game. And so higher level services are by nature, mostly higher margin. And so I feel like the cloud vendors would also want to move up the stack. But to your point, because there is now a much more grounded opportunity and the playing field is much more leveled for other folks to innovate on top of the existing core infrastructure, that they will see a lot more competition, which in, their, in your way, can play out in different ways. For example, it's timing. They, didn't, they just don't get to it. They don't see the market coming or they don't understand the segments as well as they have understood infrastructure previously. Or there, there's data that you're working on or data science context in which you're working on, which, which you can far surpass them both in terms of understanding and learning and also building. That's so, right. And just to comment on that margin thing, like one thought I've had is when people hear thoughts, they often go, okay, you think cloud vendors are just commodity, they're down pipes, right? But actually, like, I think the opposite. One of the arguments for why I think this may happen is actually that they are anything but a commodity. Because if you look at the margin in the lowest layer, it's actually pretty good. 
like EC2 is, I don't know, but like 40%. And even if you go like higher up in the stack, margins don't get to 99%. They go higher, but not like substantially higher. And if you look at like the economics, it's like a pretty good place to be in the lowest layer of the stack too. So, so I, by no means am I saying that cloud vendors are a bunch of commodity providers. Let's also remember there's really just like three cloud vendors here. When you have three competition, it's not going to be super fierce. It's a nice place to be. I think the core of what you're saying is that you expect that there are like third-party providers like Snowflake. And when they go head to head against a dedicated solution like Redshift, you believe that they are more likely to win than not when they're well-equipped. I don't think that's wrong. And I don't think anybody disagrees with that. I think just like back of the envelope math, when you have something like Redshift, right? In order for Redshift to fully capitalize on the promise of its market, that GM probably would have had to have been like 100x better at raising money than his peer than their peers like elsewhere in the organization and that's a pretty steep that's pretty steep competition at a company like aws right and i just think it's like probably not plausible right whereas whereas for snowflake it totally is plausible right because you have access to things like venture capital and so you can go and you can build out a dedicated go-to-market which is focused on driving consumption to underlying snowflake platform. That's a luxury that almost nobody at large companies has. I think it's the place where startups are really differentiated from, from big company culture. I don't think anybody for what it's worth actually disagrees about that. I think the place where this discussion gets hung up is what is, what do we mean actually when we say dumb pipes and commodity, right? Because I don't think that Snowflake, I don't think that the existence of Snowflake or the existence of something like Confluent or Temporal is going to stop AWS or Azure from building new services like those on top of their like core offerings. The reason is because I think institutionally, so Anu used to work at AWS and I used to work at Azure. <laughs> I can tell you how video on how Azure thought of this, which is Azure thought of it explicitly as a feature game. And that is in direct contrast to like what GCP thought. GCP thought we will offer better services and we will win because our services are better. And I think that turned out probably not to be as successful a strategy as they thought for most of their offerings. If you look at their ambition to be the number one or the number two cloud provider, right? In order for that to be, they have 10% the number of services, which means that people have to spend 10x the number on those services that they would on the equivalent AWS resources, right? Like they'd have to spend 10x the number on GCE that they would on EC2. And there's just no way that math works out for most GCP resources, but it might work out for query. And I think that's pretty much what we saw in the market. When you think about which of these things are commodities, right? Azure and AWS seem to be aligned in that they think of pretty much everything that they're offering as, as important to the overall offering, because that is how they consistently are able to drive additional consumption of like actual underlying compute resources, like EC2 and blob store slash S3 and stuff like that. Whereas I think. GCP fundamentally thinks of this like differently. I think of it as like essentially like large scale, like snowflake compute with a compute arm that is like nice, not as, as critical as, as its business in BigQuery. One thing I always like think about is, and I'm curious to hear what you think about this on and Alex, since you were at Amazon, is what is the existential question of all of these companies? What is like the like thing that like activates like code red, right? I'll just give you a story. I was at Spotify for many years, you know, and in my early twenties, like Apple music launched and we were like, oh my God, they're going to kill us. Right. And I think why did it they is obviously like for Apple music still, it's still around. It makes a lot of money for Apple. Part of that is I think it is like hard to like make like a, an economic case for this, but like when you are a company and it's like your existential question to survive and become a great product, then you have no choice, but to fight it. It's like Daniel X, the CEO of Spotify. It's like, he, he thinks about it 24 seven, pretty much. How am I going to crush Apple music? 
Tim Cook doesn't think about that the same way. That's also something taking it back to the cloud stuff, like something I think a lot about. Hopefully thinks about this a lot. They're like, how do we win the query, like the query and the database market, the OLAP market, right? But like the existential question for AWS or for GCP or for Azure is probably not how do we win the OLAP market? It's like, how are we the best cloud provider? And then they're a little bit less strict, more agnostic about going into different verticals. So are they number one? Are they number two? I don't know. We make a lot of money. Maybe like you said, for GCP, like BigQuery was that existential chance to like really make it. So maybe that made it super important to focus on it. But that was also something I think that is very different for startup because startups, like they have to make it work. And that's why they're so extremely focused on sometimes can deliver like an amazing experience. So for Azure, I can tell you what the internal party line was, which is like circa 2016, I went to a talk by Jason Zander, who at the time was the person who ran all of Azure. And he said, I'm in a knife fight with Amazon, and I'm going to be in a gunfight in 10 years with Google. For better or for worse, that's how I think a lot of the competitive culture of Azure came, mostly from that attitude. These days, I think the answer would probably be different. I think that if you were to roll up all of the, you have all of these like neo-cloud vendors like Confluent and Temporal and like all these databases like ClickHouse and PlanetScale and stuff. And my belief is that if you were to like somehow roll all of those companies up into a competitive platform, and position it directly against AWS, it would actually be a credible threat to their like line of business. I think it'll never happen because practically speaking, those companies all want to IPO and not, like none of them are going to sign up to be rolled up by some PE firm somewhere. But I do think that, that you could do something like that. I think that you could offer a third-party cloud just based on all the pieces of clouds that we have everywhere, including like modal, right? <laughs> First of all, I love the term neo-cloud vendor. I'm going to start using that. Second of all, I wonder if they would compete with AWS though, because like at the end of the day, they have to run it somewhere. And that's yeah, that's how funny is they still run everything on AWS. Like I modal runs everything on AWS, almost everything too. It's a real position to compete from. Yeah, totally. I think it would be like co-opetition, like pretty much anything in, in Azure. It's like Azure may eventually compete with you, but they're such a, they have such a good and robust partnership ecosystem that I don't think the company thinks of anything in the third party as like an existential threat. If you go around to like individual teams at Azure, they're like, our main competition is not whatever vendor. It's like Amazon's equivalent service, right? Like we have to be good enough that people can transition over. And that's fundamentally a different play. But for this roll up PE play, I think that it would be a much more direct threat. It would be a direct threat in the same sense that like Azure is a direct threat and that you're competing on, you're competing directly to be the primary entry point and the primary, the primary way people interact with it compute resources. I don't think that means that you end up like completely obfuscating the underlying cloud platform. I think Amazon would have to take something like that seriously. Yeah. So for all the founders to be who are listening to us, here's a idea from Alex. If you somehow manage to convince all of these neo cloud vendors to combine together and provide some layer, by the way, that was also my idea for if I were to be a second time founder, we can raise a lot of money and to start a company that would be actually within that provide some IAM layer and billing layer over other third party solutions. I actually think that is probably the only way to challenge Microsoft, Google, and Amazon these days. So let's move on for our next topic. Alex, a couple of days ago, you decided to host an AMA, which no one asked for, as far as I know, about why Mesosphere did not become the world's leading company. So what made you be reminiscent of this golden time and tell us what are your thoughts on it? 
so funnily enough, and if you look at the original message, it's like at Moin like AMA, because I actually have gotten this question three times and but every time it's like the conversation has been like marginally interesting. So I suggested we put it inside the Discord. I think Mesosphere is an interesting company because you could argue at the time that it was the hottest infrastructure startup ever. It came out in a time when Docker, Docker is also in contention for that and CoreOS is in contention for that, but they all came out in the, around the same time. But I think that there was a point in time where it seemed like Mesosphere was closing all of these enormous contracts and it had all of this attention and all of this, it had all of this momentum and it seemed like it was going to work and become like Microsoft for the cloud. Like the thought was that like, they had this like very elegant, this very elegant, what's the word? <laughs> this elegant analogy to like windows, right? Like they have, they've built like this distributed like kernel, which helps you like schedule long running tasks, like long running distributed systems on clusters and stuff like that. And, and I think it, it looked very plausible that it was going to work right up until, until Kubernetes came along and ate their lunch. And I think for infrastructure companies in particular, I think there's like a bunch of questions around why that are instructive. And so we had like this entire debate about this and, and Tim used to work there and I worked on the windows side of this, I worked on the windows integration from the Microsoft side of things. And I guess. I could summarize like what the discussion was, like what would be helpful here? Yeah. So maybe Tim, you can give us your view of the world as at least the only one on this call that used to work there. And I think there was like very long texts of other people who participate in discussion, but I don't think many of them actually worked at the company. So it would be curious to hear from the horse's mouth, what actually went there and why didn't become the next Microsoft. Yeah. So why did this incredibly promising startup not fulfill its potential that you worked at, Tim? Yeah. I was curious why you even talk about this in the first place, but I guess it's certainly just caveat. My, I joined probably first 10 employees, something like that. I messed with sheriffs. They were about almost two and a half years or so. So I'm not a founder, right? Every, everybody has their own personal story with the mesosphere. And I think, of course, messages are still alive, right? They're not, they're not completely dead. We need a detail IQ to just got it also like disclaimer. We're not saying detail IQ forever is like <laughs> gone on earth, but we're talking about, if you're just talking about like mesos specifically, I think mesos was definitely one of the most promising technology and product that you can take containers at scale. So when I started a mesos year, right, Docker was just taking off still early, still taking off, but we still wasn't so sure what's the far extent what Dr. will be adopted. Messenger was at the good time. If you remember how Messos started, then Hyman, a few folks at Berkeley Rice Lab, and they have a research project. They found some good successes and then went to Twitter to make a production. And of course, they're interviewing via the ball. So Messos was a very interesting place where it started. They started when you already have scale. Twitter's using in production, and that's how they raise money. Right. They say, Hey, let's make everybody else a Twitter. Let's make everybody else able to run containers at scale. Right. This is only Facebook. There's a way Google, right? There's Tupperware, there's board. There's things that run at scale, but it's not everywhere and containers will be everywhere. So Mesos with already a quality of products that can run into the thousands, the tens of thousands of bare metal machines, which is actually, that's how we won the sort of like the quality play at the beginning. And yeah, we should have, <laughs> we could have run it all the way to be the most dominant player. And in my opinion, cause I, I worked on this, 
I was a Apache MySQL PMC. I actually worked a lot on the container side. I, was, I worked on Docker Containerizer and, and all that jazz. And to me, I think that there's a few things to think about. One is, of course, whenever you say when a company and their direction doesn't work out, there's always a lot of factors. One is, of course, the macro factor. Kubernetes came in. And we saw Kubernetes from day one. I don't know if it was a public or not, but pub Kubernetes did came to Mesos to talk about starting Kubernetes together. Back and we were talking to Google board team almost every week. And we're on a call, us talking about what potential things to do together. There's, there's a lot of strategy execution that comes around what sort of leadership and a team expectation of what should happen and how it actually pan out. One big problem, I definitely see why Mesos didn't pan out. I think I put on a, on a Discord is I think we, the whole container vibe, I will call it, you know, with the core OS, Docker, Mesosphere is that nobody can touch us. Docker, we can't really go touch Docker's wide distribution. Docker Storm can't really touch our Mesos at scale and quality. And right, CoreOS is that's the only thing. <laughs> Don't even know how to categorize it, but we are known for that. And I remember Kubernetes, when it came to discuss about, hey, let's start something together. It was not a simple, let's just do Kubernetes together. It was a lot of big trade-off of company direction of what they want to take things. It was, there was a lot of debate about how architecturally we should do things, right? How we should do execution, this level. So it really was a big, I feel like it was a fairly large bet if we were actually to embrace Kubernetes. And it was an obvious bet back in the day when, when we're all the hottest company ever. It definitely feels that way at Mesosphere, right? It feels like everything is taking off. Everybody's coming to Mesos to your office to do partnerships. We're working on different frameworks. We're known everywhere. And so there's a sentiment that, Hey, we could just continue on the path. Well, Kubernetes will not win. That's what we thought of Kubernetes will not win. They're always the same responses when you think about Kubernetes. Oh, it's just a little side projects, right? It's, isn't Google is not necessarily taking it so seriously. I look at the call, look at the people involved. It's not really. It's not, they may not take off. There's no precedence of any Google open source products to took over in that layer. So that was one oversight I think was what problem. Yeah, Kubernetes. My impression, correct me if I'm wrong here, it was like, I feel like Kubernetes, but I was very like far from this. I feel like Kubernetes was like, Mesos was like, oh, we're going to run like 10,000 computers, hundreds of thousands of containers. That's what we're going to do. And I feel like sometimes when you design a system for that, you kind of say it's like, a lot of other things, like it's, it's hard to set it up. It's hard to, there's all this like complicated configuration. And then Kubernetes came and it was like, my impression is like, like, we're not going to run at like 10,000 computers. Come on. Like you don't have a big cluster. You have 10 machines. Like we'll make it simple for you to get started. And, and I, that's like maybe about being like super reductive here, but it, is that, do you feel like there was an element of that where like Kubernetes just like made it very simple for like beginners to get started or not beginners. I was pretty sophisticated, but like. Relatively speaking, it was easier to get started with Kubernetes and it maybe it didn't have to, you know, it maybe it didn't run at the same scale, but maybe that was fine. Yeah. So this is the Mesos strip plan, right? Mesos, right. Designed for scale, two-level scheduling, everything needs a framework. Just even run a pod. It needs a framework that sits on top of Mesos and babysit, zookeeper, all that jazz. It's a ton of complexity. Plus we do have DCOS. We do have data center as operating system. It'll be one click install. I remember the first demo was like a queer, glossy looking, coloring, feeling thing where you drag and drop Kafka, you drag and drop whatever. 
it installs like your phone, it will be happy. Everybody just want the iPhone-like experience with a complicated kernel behind the scenes. Right, that was like the premise that if DCOS can be so easy to use, everybody would just want to use DCOS because Marathon just one click install, right? Everything else is just one click install. It's supposed to be like that. But I think obviously we are way overestimating how much actual complexity of work that takes. You ask the hottest company that's signing me if it's going to take another two, three years to even do a simple thing. We thought it would just be another three to six months. The DCOS definitely was way harder to build than practice. And now it kind of Kubernetes for sure. It didn't require another thing on top, right? It was all built in with a really good concise API to do like the necessary thing to run a service, right? The pause, the stateful sets, right? Of course, it, it, it incrementally added this over time, but I think the fundamental, the fundamental sort of philosophy was, Hey, let's build with the community wide open, right? With a wide open approach from scratch. So it's a whole lot more welcoming and warm than the mesos where we're like C plus, we're using Twitter, don't come to us. Any code change is very not even like happy about it. You know, your default, like rejecting people's code from the first place. We're not even like looking for so much like community engagement. Recruits is way different, right? No, nobody's running production anyways. Let's just come start from the beginning. So we saw the brand new design that doesn't require that much complicated setup. And I think that there's a lot of vendors dynamics with it. Right. Because people wasn't so there, I've definitely heard people wasn't so happy about Mesos for dominance, right. And a strategic relationship with some cloud providers. And therefore it kicks around the tires that, Hey, Kubernetes seems like it's wide open for us to actually get involved from day one. So if you make your name out of there instead of that, and yeah, for sure, it's simpler to run, have everything kind of bundle, kind of what Alice talked about in Discord. You don't really need to run a bunch of other stuff. And I. They've also the community play plays so much into this where it was not as hard to get involved. Yeah. I was just going to say, believe in what Eric said, the path and the shape of the product seems to have come from who you were building it for. And I'm actually pulling on a thread that we also had at Amazon is that sometimes you can get very attached to the Amazon use case when we are sitting in AWS. And in fact, Amazon is the worst customer to build for. It's an absolute outlier and you shouldn't build for that. And so we intentionally tried to make sure that we built this mainstream and try to understand that use case rather than some the 10,000 customer use case or the container use case. Yeah. So yeah. this might be like a super sweeping generalization, but I always feel like it's like, it's hard to go from one side of the spectrum to the other, but it, it feels like it's much harder to go from enterprise to like small scale than it is from, to go from small scale to enterprise, right? Like it generally is a little bit easier to start with small scale and then like layer on and let graduate up and like then build the enterprise scale than the other way around. Yeah. But the thing that I'm having like a serious kind of dissonance here is we're talking about Google and you know, what as promising as Mesosphere was a startup, it still was a, a tiny startup compared to the almighty Google. And we're actually saying that this the startup, I know if over engineer is the right term, but like obviously build it for a very large use case. While Google, that is probably one of the largest compute fabrics in the world with all the politics and all of that somehow managed to create a, a solution that is actually viable for the smaller companies. What are your thoughts there? How did that happen? I was a very early employee at Heptio. I think if you ask three Google engineers, you'll get four opinions about how this happened. I've never been able to fully understand, like, a, a, my conclusion is like, there isn't one thing that like 
that caused them to win. I think one thing that strikes me in retrospect is that I think there are a lot of mar like market dynamics are really important in infrastructure because infrastructure is not that big of a space. You have maybe tens of low tens of thousands of technical buyers for like complicated compute products, which means that if you want to IPO as a company, you have to win a hundred percent more or less. And I think that, I think in retrospect, we did not fully appreciate working, we, Microsoft, working on the other end and being investors in Mesa's true did not fully appreciate is how important it was to win like the top 100 or 200 of those infrastructure engineers. And once Kubernetes did that, I think like it determined the dynamics of the space and we just were, it, we were just slow to catch up, catch up to that fact. The second thing is that I think it's worth wondering whether there actually was a winner. And I, this is a super hot tip because I'm dear friends with a lot of the early Mesosphere people like Tim, and I'm also dear friends with a lot of early Heptio people. But what if it's the case that there is actually no significant business that is winning in open source compute fabric? What if it is the case that it only looks like one of them won because they're having enormous business success? And, and what if it's actually just the case that the failure mode in Mesosphere is more obvious because it blew up in a more significant way, whereas Heptio got acquired for 585 million. And what I mean by that is you think about like, how do you actually build like a durable business on top of something like Kubernetes basis? I don't know that anybody has yet. Like, I think the cloud providers are winning on hosting, right? Like I'm sure EKS is doing amazing. I'm sure GK is doing amazing, but, um, but it's not super clear to me what the path is to people who are not a part of one of those cloud providers and even VMware, which is like an established incumbent, right? Which is treating the Heptio acquisition as a mulligan on containers it is not obvious to me that Tanzu is taking over the world in the way that you would expect from a company that employs two of the three Kubernetes founders and, and which is, has like an established Salesforce whose job is to sell compute infrastructure to other. So I'd actually love to hear, so like Anu, I know you worked on like Firecracker, right? I believe you wrote the original PRD, if I'm remembering that correctly. Yeah. And like Eric, you work on a compute provider, it's like yourself, like, I'd love to hear, do you think there is a winner at all, like possible? Is it the case that there was a successful offering here that like we just didn't actually build? Or do you think the way out is to become a compute provider like modal is? I think you're raising a really good point that may maybe Kubernetes only won because there actually isn't a real good business model and it only won because Google supported it so heavily. And I was like, what well, the kind of pep theory I was had is like Google maybe as being an underdog at that time, at least as a cloud provider, maybe did that very intentionally to increase the portability of cloud workloads. Well, you know, if you ask Craig in 2016, he would have said that is the case. <laughs> I mean, okay. He said explicitly that is why he, one of the reasons why he built it. I think that answers the question in a way that like then Google did win, but that he was way because there's no real, maybe there's no real business model of cloud compute fabric. Maybe the only business model is to like leverage it into something else. And Google did that very successfully, you know, that a lot of credit to them. Same. I also don't know the distribution between re just regular containers and Kubernetes specifically on cloud providers. And I don't know if there's, if Kubernetes is bigger or smaller, but it sounds like I would use a managed service when I can. And if that is the most cost-effective and productive way for me to run it, I'm not sure if I care anymore, actually more, the more time I spend on compute, the more I realize that I don't care anymore if it's running on Kubernetes or yet another container service. 
Yeah. So going back to the original question, which is Tim is why should we care about mesosphere, right? It's like dead or whatever. I don't, it's not actually dead, but like, why should we care about it? I think there are a couple of things that are worth wondering as people who are working on dev tools and infrastructure, which is, is open source compute fabric a viable model at all period? And if it is a viable model, right? I would say like, my view is like, we don't have a lot of evidence that is true, right? Like the big success in the space were people who got acquired into other companies to be a significant part of those business units. But the second thing, the reason why I think it's interesting is because I think it does actually reveal something about market dynamics where you can start with a company that has like tens of millions of dollars in ARR, right? And they can appear to be, right? Like by all accounts, I think like this company looked like it was going to take the space, right? It had an excellent team, right? Like early Mesosphere is one of the best infrastructure teams in my view ever, having personally worked with them. They had objectively very smart <laughs> investors, if that's the thing that you think matters to a company. So they had just enormous contracts, a lot of credibility coming out of saving Twitter from the fail whale, coming out of helping Airbnb scale up or whatever, at least this was the narrative. And like still completely got hosed, right? When, when an, another technology came on. And I think that it's worth wondering, like, what are the dynamics that would even make that possible? And my conclusion from that, like my hypothesis coming out of that was like, then the space of qualified buyers must be a lot smaller than people are saying, right? You're not actually looking for that. It affects everything about the space in ways that are subtle, right? What if it's true that infrastructure, the reason why infrastructure is open source is an effective distribution model to get on people's roadmaps is because there are not that many infrastructure engineers that you can appeal to in the first place, right? Like for a long time, the heterodox was the orthodoxy was you should not make anything open source. You should just like, like, that's not a business model. Only Red Hat is like ever going to be successful doing that. They're a consultancy that it changed to, you can't make an, like an infrastructure company without open sourcing things. And I think the truth is that the reason why open source worked at that point in time is because there was a lot of infrastructure that was not yet built. Cloud providers had not offered that. There was like a gap in the ability to run things like Hadoop. And, and so this was like a time when you could reach the 10,000 or so infrastructure engineers who had the power to actually implement this stuff. And because there were not that many of them, when a small number of very highly skilled engineers who drive demand in the rest of the space, change their minds about something, it can cause a company like that to completely lose its footing when it clearly, it was, it seemed very obvious that it was not, it was going to succeed. Alex, so let me generalize your question a little bit. And well, you work for a company that probably is the biggest startup killer of them all. Every reInvent conference is basically another episode of the Red Wedding where AWS just, you know, shuts all the startups in a room and kills them one by one. And, but I'm curious, and since you have seen it a lot from the inside, what do you think are some of the mistakes that startups make in avoiding realizing that Microsoft, Google, and Amazon might eventually come in their launch. On one hand, I think all of us here are either founders, VCs, or people who work at startups. We make fun of when VCs ask us, oh, what's your strategy against Google, Amazon, or Microsoft? But as we've been discussing now here, like it's a real threat. And so do you have any idea of what type of companies are stand well against the test of time against those free mega players? And one of the, some of the ill criteria for when companies just disappear. I'll, my, I'll answer first in a generic form, and then I'll take a specific example of that. One, I think in fact, from the previous discussion, my takeaway may have been different from Alex's is my takeaway was that the. Cracking the market is a harder problem than cracking the technology. 
And if I can find a way to enter a market and see adoption and buy adoption or figure out a way to identify what the pain point is and work backwards from that, that to me gives an instant edge over any technical advantage that I can, I might have built ahead of time before tracking the market risk. So I would ad adjust the market risk first. And I think that's what part of what Eric is doing, I feel, is why I feel I, I'm all in on modal because I that is a developer experience sharpness that I just don't see any of the cloud providers having and not specifically Amazon, maybe the others have, but that's not where their eye is, as as Eric pointed out. Their eyes are in a four in four or five different dimensions, and maybe this is the seventh dimension, uh, which I'm sure they're tracking, but isn't the highest priority. And for me, I feel if you can crack developer experience, for, that has implicate that means that you have cracked a few different things, which is you've cracked the right level of abstraction, you've cracked the practitioner experience on a hand on a day to day basis, whether you're actually moving, helping them move the product, their product from development to production. And so for me, that is the, that's the key is, is working backwards from product experience and market. I think Martin calls it annealing experience rather than the deep tech that one needs to crack. I think Alex had some really good points. And by the way, I agree with what you're saying on it. I sort of call this too, but I just want to just return to Alex's points because I, I thought it was like really interesting, right? You certainly talked about open source as a distribution mechanism. And I think that was very true, right? We look back when I started my professional career in the mid 2000s, only way to install software was primarily to download open source software and run it on your computer. Like the distribution model of like, you go and sign up, you put a credit card on the website didn't really exist. And now that's a big thing. And so back then it was like a huge distribution advantage, but I don't think it is anymore. And then, and it does make it harder to compete on an open source angle. And for that reason, I don't think. I think that's the reason why we don't see as many open source startups anymore. I don't think that's necessarily like hundred percent true. The cash corp seems like somewhat successful, but I do think that like more generally, like it's not as much of an advantage as the distribution mechanism. And it's definitely a disadvantage on the monetization side, because if you're monetizing through cloud provider services, it's very easy to capture revenue versus monetizing through service or other types of contracts or whatever. I think both of those points are so interesting. Both you and Anu's points are so interesting. The thing that I think about all the time is like the elastic debate versus the elastic licensing debate versus Databricks fucking crushing it. I think when I, it's so interesting to watch one company that is, I realize the whole offering is not completely open source, but I don't think that's true of elastic either, but. When I hear Elastic complain about like licensing, it just strikes me as it, it strikes me that it seems like their problem is actually not the license itself. It's that they don't have efficient ways of driving consumption to their platform. Whereas Databricks very clearly does. And like Snowflake very clearly does. Snowflake obviously not open source, but, but it's, it's so interesting to hear like open source versus not open source get caught up in this debate when I think fundamentally the thing, it seems like almost like a category error that you would think about that instead of thinking about how do I drive consumption to like elastic platform. And for a company like elastic, it seems like they're, I would have guessed at least initially that there were like no shortage of ways to actually do that because search is so integrated to so many core parts of your business, like logs, internal search and all of that stuff, but they're just, they seem to be having a harder time of actually doing that stuff. And so when Anu says, I think the problem that's actually hard is like cracking the market. It's, I think you could argue that in so many different ways, like all, like there are so many ways in which it is hard to build a machine where you can reliably drive consumption to, to, to that platform. 
and it's hard for so many different reasons and it's then no two companies have experienced the hardest in precisely the same way and so it's it's difficult for me to I think it's difficult to draw like broad lessons out of something like Mesa's versus Kubernetes because even the success cases are not entirely truthful about the whole story that you're being that you're telling yeah so by the way let me also throw in here one example you might argue it's a simple case because Alex you said all these companies were acquired but though was one company in space that actually went public, which was pivotal. And then also that didn't help them much against Kubernetes. They also disappeared. Yeah. No idea whether they still exist. Apologies for what they do now, but what, what is the case there? Because so, the, that the worst of revenue, the company went public. Yeah. So I'll tell you a little story from the Microsoft side of things. So I got to see all three of these things in the market at exactly the same time from Microsoft's perspective. This was 2015 or 2016 when GE was rolling out Critics, which I don't know if anybody remembers was like this giant IoT platform. And the idea of Critics was like GE has $2 trillion in like assets lying around that it owns none of the maintenance cycle for. And so they're like, let's fix it. Right. And, and their idea was to like build this like giant IoT platform, which pulled all this data from all these different places. And they were building it on top of Pivotal Cloud Foundry. <laughs> and we thought they should build it on top of Mesos because Mesos looked like it was going to be able to like support workloads at that scale. And, and it is, it was so, in, it, it was so interesting because like at that time, I think one of the reasons why Pivotal in the market seemed like it was doing so well is because people had frankly, like very little idea of how to actually get these large systems into production. And I mean that in a very fundamental way, like when GE came to us. Not to call them out, but because a lot of people are in this position, but when they came to us, they were like, we're going to deploy this on Pivotal. And we were like, like by our count, that would make you the largest Pivotal deployment by two orders of magnitude. So like the largest by a hundred, right? And there's just like, you do the back of the envelope math and it's like, there's a long path from here to there. And, and so it looked like from our, from my perspective, at least it looked like they were getting all of this adoption, both like traditional enterprise, more traditional enterprise workflow workloads, like Spring Boot and stuff like that, but also these really large deployments. But those deployments were like not quite implemented yet and were never quite successful. And then those plans never quite worked. And I think you could argue the same thing mostly like for Mesos too. Like the Verizon Labs contract, my understanding is like, it's like whatever, like a 10, 12, $12 million contract. My understanding is that project eventually got shut down. And, and so I think like, I think the way that the space looked from the outside made it look more successful than it really was. Whereas now we have real workloads running on various AWS services and they're running at very appreciable scale. And that's really happening. That's not vaporware in the same way that it was in the previous generation of companies. I'd love to get somebody on who was there at Pivotal when this happened, but I do know that when Heptio got acquired, one of the adjacencies that they were optimizing for was integration with Pivotal. And Pivotal, my understanding is, was meant to fold into the, Kubernetes, the future Kubernetes platform. I don't know whether that was successful. If I was to guess it ahead of time, my guess would be it would not be that successful because Kubernetes is not very good at scheduling workloads. So yeah, I actually worked on Cloud Foundry before joining. Oh, you worked at Pivotal, right? No, the new before Pivotal, VMware, and with to join Pivotal or leave. So I actually left because I didn't took on joining Pivotal, but I have early worked on Cloud Foundry and. If you, if I can contrast the Cloud Foundry versus Mesos, I think Cloud Foundry from day one, right? It's really has tried to nail down the developer experience plus the packaging and the sort of pass idea versus I, I think Mesosphere, if we actually treated Mesos, like we could use Kubernetes or even Mesos, doesn't really matter as much and really treat it just as another kernel and made it 
more community friendly and just much more open from day one and focus on the top, we probably have a lot more possible shots and winning than trying to sell missiles and then trying to sell something on top is a very different game to me. Because I think, do you think Calfoundry was really geared to a larger enterprise, like you mentioned? Right, they have a lot of footing in Fortune hundreds. They've done a lot of spring integrations, a lot of services that really appeal to them. So wherever I talk to companies or customers, we're all like big financials and stuff like that. And they don't treat Cloud Foundry the same way as like Kubernetes. They treat it as a way to get to consolidate their application developers' overall experience deploying and developing applications. Whereas Mesosphere is a big giant balls of everything. I don't know. I think Pivotal nailed down sort of the overall customer base was a lot more portfolio approach, right? Pivotal Tracker was the traditional starting points, right? They consolidated with, with called Foundry and went after like this overall enterprise solution to help you and didn't really go and scatter around a lot of different things versus back in the container space, everybody is your customer. So we're talking to everyone, talking to large companies, small companies, we're selling everything. You know, Mesel has a story and DCOS has a story and everything and above. And I, we don't have that much people to really sustain that or even able to deliver it in a short amount of time. So a lot of those kind of things come into play and we focus on the customer. I do think it makes quite a big difference. Yeah, there is definitely something to be said about companies that are, which I think Pivotal definitely was a sales-led company. And one thing that I agree with Tim, I think they, they have done a good job, is to understand what their customers need and willing to pay for, and just create that thing with some level, obviously, of generalization and abstraction, and then go and sell it all the way to, to IPO versus, I would say, Mesosphere, which, by the way, probably given that Mesos was in its name, would be hard to treat it as yet another kernel. But yeah, there was definitely something to be said about a startup trying to be everything for everyone. And with that, we can actually wrap up for today, this episode. Thank you folks for joining us today. <laughs>